This is Sheep Stuff You Should Know, and uh, I'm Dan Macon, Flying Mule Sheep Company and UC Cooperative Extension up in Auburn, California, and you are? Here, Brian Mahoney with R. Amy Livestock out of Rio Vista, California. And I, this is our first episode in May. We, we've done this a whole month now, which has been fun. It's been good. It's been really yes. Fun. Did did you have a did you have a, a a Corona and a taco on Cinco de Mayo during Taco Tuesday uh, during the coronavirus pandemic? We I had I had three tacos. I I did not have any Corona in the house, but I I did have other cerveza. That's uh, good deal. It's good. How about you? Carnitas. Oh, nice. Yeah, we whipped up some carnitas. They were delicious. We do. Sammy has a a carnitas recipe that we use lamb shoulder for. Ooh, it's really good. That sounds really killer. Yeah. I just take, we take a, I take a, a, a bone in pork butt and then we just slow cook it all day in the crock pot with whatever spices I feel like throwing in. And it, it a little apple cider vinegar goes a long way. And That's, we kind of do the same, same thing with the lamb shoulder. Man, yeah. it's, it's spectacular. That's, That's awesome. In fact, we've done that. Um, for a soccer fundraiser for our soccer boosters, and uh, we've got we've got lamb converts because of that now. So oh, that's awesome! Isn't that great to prepare lamb in new ways for people? Yes, everybody has that roast leg of lamb in their head, or maybe yep. the lamb chop. But yep. when you when you do something creative with it, it gets kind of you surprises people and gets to be pretty yep. tasty. It really does. It really does. And we've even had people say, how did you prepare that beef? That's the best beef I've ever had. Well, first we started with lamb. <laughs> so that's always, always fun to let them know that. Yeah. So I thought we'd start today um, because it is a new month and just kind of briefly wanted to know what's going on down there. What are you guys, you guys are done with shearing now, but, but what are you doing now? Yeah, so May 1st, we're done weaning all our lambs, everything. We weaned all the stuff born in October. We're all weaned in, uh, in February, January. And then, but then we bought some ewes that we lambed out in February, and we just finished weaning those. Actually, we finished the last bunch tomorrow or Friday, so in one or two days, we'll have all those lambs weaned. Um, irrigation's in full swing. We dried out. Typically, we'll be still green right now, but right now we're dry and brown, and so we're scrambling for feed, moving stuff around. We're weaning calves early and uh, just irrigating and loading up, loading up the feed yard. So kind of a lot of, a lot of moving parts. It's when the weather changes, animals have to move. And so it's a lot of shuffle. So, yeah. How about you? Well, we're irrigating too. You know, we're, we're probably two or three weeks behind you guys in terms of the feed turning brown here, but feed's pretty well headed out on our hills. So we've been irrigating now for, I guess, going on three weeks. And um, I don't have as much irrigation to do as you guys do, but but it's a seven-day-a-week job um, for six months straight. So kind of settling in the groove of, of getting up every day and moving water. Tomorrow. I, on your irrigation, not to cut you yeah. off, but to cut you yeah. off. Uh, <laughs> I got it on your, on your pasture, and this is totally off topic, but – do you do any um, fertilization or um, any, you know, supplement the nutrient requirement of your pastures while you're irrigating? 
You know, we have not. Um, and I've, I've always kind of thought that maybe that didn't pencil for us. Um, I just read some research that was done up actually at Tule Lake at one of the research stations up there um, that suggests maybe nitrogen is worth doing on irrigated pasture. Um, and so I'm thinking of maybe doing a little trial just internally to see what kind of production boost we would get. I think there's parts of our pasture that we can irrigate and manage really well. And there's parts of it because it's all hilly that's thinner soils and tough to get water to stay on very long. And I don't know that I'd, I'd, I'd fertilize those portions of the pasture, but where we can boost forage growth, I'm kind of thinking about trying that. Are, do you guys do any of that? Uh, so we have in the past, we used to, um, we used to put uh, commercial 1152 on, on our mm -hmm. irrigated pastures historically forever. Um, but then phosphorus got really expensive. And so then we ended up uh, backing off of our rotation. And then the recent years, we've been experimenting with um, different like uh, biosolids or compost type type fertilizations. Yeah. Um, simply because the commercial price got so expensive. Um, but yeah, we'll definitely, this, that's, it's on my topic list. So we'll just use this as a <laughs> teaser and go back on track. But I, as yeah. that popped into my head, I was curious. Yeah, I think it's on my topic list too, and it's it's uh, something I want to look at both from from a UC standpoint, but from our own operation. So it'd be a good one to come back to. Yeah. So the other thing, just real quick, and then we'll we'll jump in. But the other thing we've got going on this week, we shear almost every year the Saturday before Mother's Day, which my wife is always really happy about. But shearing for us means that we got to haul everybody home for a couple of days to, to get them shorn. So tomorrow we'll haul sheep home, they'll go off feeding water on Friday and we'll start shearing Saturday, be done kind of late afternoon Saturday and then reverse that process, haul them all back to the ranch on Sunday. So it'll be a, a good weekend to, I always like shearing weekend, partly because I like Monday after shearing weekend a lot. <laughs> um, but it's one of those, as you said, one of those mileposts that I always look forward to in our year. So, I love sharing. Sharing's, I, I really enjoy it. It's a lot of work, but I just, I love the wool and I love seeing the genetic change in the wool year over year, generational change. Yeah, I, I, I enjoy that part of it too. And I, the other part that will be a little different for us this year is that it's, it has always kind of been our version of a calf branding and that, neighbors and friends come to help out and I, I look forward to that part of it every year it's going to be a little different this year because we're going to limit who's here just because of what's going on but but it is one of those times that takes a bigger group of people and and uh, it's a lot of hard work but it's also a lot of a lot of laughing and and good-natured fun too so I look forward yeah. to that part of it. So, so I wanted to this week um, maybe kind of dig a little deeper into something we touched on last week and and that's risk management um and we've both been dealing with the the fallout from this um COVID-19 crisis but it really to me pointed out how important being thoughtful about risk management is in our operations and I wanted to kind of start by asking you what what are the risks that keep you up at night 
what are the things that you most worry about in terms of, of risks to your business um, outside of this COVID issue? So good. That's an excellent starting question. Um, I stay up at night. I don't worry about price as much as I worry about operational efficiency things. Labor is always, I'm always afraid of the unknown, whatever you call it, the unknown cost of labor. Um, and that's not just, that's the, that every year we seem to be getting, uh, hitting with a um, large percentage increase in that expense category and the price of product isn't going up. And so it, it forces you to be more efficient and whether your efficiencies can keep up with the increases is a worry. And then at the end of the day, you know, it's making sure that your, your, um, your debt, your debts in check. So, you know, when, where we we operated with the operating line, we have long-term debt and operating uh, revolving line of credit. And um, so as you operate throughout the year, you have to pay attention to those ratios to make sure they're in balance. But the more important ratio is that in the case of a COVID-19, you can withstand it because you'll immediately go up in your ratios and, um, and can run into some major issues and not be able to pay your bills. So that I'd say that's one of the, that's probably the most important part of risk management for me is that ratio, but there's a lot of other external risk factors in livestock and ag in general. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think um, one of the things that I, I also don't worry about price. Um, because it's one of those things that I largely can't control. You know, I can control a little bit about how and where I market, which has a bearing on the price that, that I get. But trying to think about those things I can control in terms of risk, um, and maybe in, in those things I can't control how I buffer the effects of them. I've kind of started thinking about risk in, in several different categories. We've always at our kind of small part-time scale, self-financed what we do. And so debt ratios aren't something that we look at, but we certainly look at the finance. What, you know, every year we make a choice whether or not we want to stay in the sheep business. And we put the value of those assets at risk every year we decide to continue. Um, and so we do, we do think about that financial risk. I think the things that keep me awake at night tend to vary by time of year. You know, at lambing time, um, I look at, at the kind of the production risk that we have would be inclement weather um, and, and some animal health issues versus coming into the summer months now. Every time I hear a fire plane go over here in the foothills, I'm looking to see where the smoke is and to see if it's in the same direction of where the sheep are um, because it's, you know, that's a, that's a risk factor for us as well. Do you have a formal risk management plan that, that you work from in any, in any shape or form? Uh, we have a loose one. It's not, it's not incredibly formal and um, thoroughly written down. And um, most of the risk management, the written 
risk management plans have to do with uh, kind of price protection or asset protection. Mm -hmm. So I, I looked up before we started, I, I looked up the definition of risk management and risk management is the forecasting and evaluation of, of financial risks together with the identification of procedures to avoid or minimize the impact. So I think you touched on, there's a lot of different, and I think in both of us, we touched on, there's a lot of, there's a lot more risk factors than just price. Right. But then I think it's also to remember that price is still a risk factor. Right. And so then the next step is then what tools do we have to help manage the risk in each of those categories? Right. Right. And right. So I don't think I answered your question directly. But. No, I think you did. I think that, that kind of segues to the, the way that we've organized our thinking about it. We've we've divided risk into production risk and they're all obviously all interrelated, but, but I think there's production risk in our business. So that would be things like burning up all of our feed or a drought or animal disease issues. Um, there are obvious financial and market risks. You know, there's a risk that, that our wool, we didn't realize how much of a risk we were at, last year and shipping our wool, but that there's a risk that it doesn't sell right now. And that's something we got to account for. And then we also look at kind of that human and, and legal risk. You know, we don't have employees necessarily. Oh gosh, about 14 years ago, I fell off a stack of hay and broke both my arms. And so I was not doing a whole lot of sheep work while I was recovering from that. And I realized that we have human risk just like somebody with employees would have human risk. If there's nobody there to do the work, how does it get done? It's a different kind of risk that can get overlooked is the risk of you not being there. Right, right, yeah. exactly, exactly. And, and the other piece of that for me, I had a, a friend that farmed here in Placer County, Farm Citrus, um, who passed away a couple of years ago. Nobody knew where the irrigation shutoff was. It was all in his head. Nobody knew the passwords to the bank accounts. Nobody knew where the phone numbers for the people that bought the mandarin oranges were located. So all of those types of things that, that I tend to keep in here can also be a risk if I'm not around. And it really opened my eyes to some, some other things that maybe we need to do in our business. Yeah, for us, when it comes to those kind of things, we really, really have stressed kind of cross-training at, at all levels. And, and uh, we joke, me, John, and Jeff, we joke, we joke every once in a while about working ourselves out of a job. Like we try to train everybody around us so that way they can do our job. But if we do that properly, then when somebody does, um, you know, somebody gets hurt and can't work for a period of time, um, somebody has a baby and needs time off, somebody, um, needs to go back to Mexico because they have a family emergency or something like that. There's people just ready to step into that, that role and, and start working. That doesn't mean the people that are there are, are, uh, are just replaceable people. They're all very valuable, but it's important to recognize that you have to, everybody has to know what's going on so things can continue. Um, and 
yourself included. I always look at myself in that, and um, it's really hard to to delegate all of your favorite jobs away. But I try to do that as best I can. <laughs> <laughs> so, not giving up, not not giving up the wool skirting though. Or, <laughs> that's part of the deal too, right? Is that it's it. There are parts of the stuff that I really like to do, and that's the things that I want to maintain. But but other people have to know how to do them, or or they there's a chance they don't get done. What? Who's involved? So you talked a little bit about about cross training, but in your business, who's involved in thinking about risk? And then who? How do you go about incorporating the rest of your your crew into understanding and, and thinking about those risks that that you might be worried about yeah so it definitely um it, the risk the risk management or the the plans that get executed are developed by me and um my two guys that help me with everything so john and jeff uh, and so we work as a team to come up with our ideas and then we go and implement them. Do you um, formally set aside time to talk about that or is it just? Uh, yeah, yeah, we definitely, we, I try to meet once a week with the COVID stuff and with different things. When we get busy, it turns into once a month um, with informal discussions every day. Yeah. Uh, right. But, but we try to set time, like my next meeting with John's going to be on uh, Tuesday um, for a couple hours. And so we'll just set time aside. When we went to ASI last January, we used that as kind of our kind of planning, annual planning retreat. Our, our fiscal year end is March 1, February 28th. And so we were able to meet a month prior to the end of the year to set our budgets for the following year. And we we're able to take kind of two and a half, three days to sit down as a team and really focus without distractions on all that stuff. So we do try to do those things. Um, scale plays into whether you can or can't do those things but the most important part is I think um, just communication through everybody involved and if it's just two people involved that communication is just as important with the two yeah. as it is with 30 yeah. and so it's just it's about staying understanding I, I heard a definition a few days ago about like um, about like caring about somebody and tolerance and if you just, if you, if you just, uh, if you truly care about someone, you argue vehemently your opinion because you care that they are correct. And so it's really important to have those strong discussions and strong opinions and prove one or the other correct. Because when you have a good working relationship, both sides are strong in their opinions and both sides are willing to agree to the correct one. And, and, so, and passionate about the success of the entity of the business or, or yeah because the goals are beyond self right you know yeah, it's, you right. gotta you gotta make the goal the success of the company not the success of the person so right right um so yeah so but we definitely do that um we approach our cattle differently than we approach sheep um mostly because the tools are different um that you can use sheep sheep have a lot different risk factors than cattle so give me an example. So the best example of that is the futures market. Right. So in the cattle, and the cattle, it's much more of a price risk. Uh, you have a lot more price risk tools, and your risks are more price driven. In the right. sheep, I'd say the largest right now in COVID, it's really showing itself. But we've long believed that 
one of the biggest risks in the sheep industry is um, what do you call it? The ability to sell your animal. So the um, if you're we're selling to the the packing houses, an ability to sell to that spot and have a spot to sell it is probably the most important factor. In the cattle business, it's not quite as bad because even if you can't sell them, there's people out there willing to pay very low prices for those products. So, um, and that's just because of the diversity of of, um, of uh, outlets you have in the in the cattle versus the packing capacity of lamb. And so mm -hmm. we've always felt that was a big risk. And so when we go into our negotiations, we try to contract everything we have. Well, everything we have is contracted. Um, our wool, we have a contract on our wool and um, we sell, um, we sell the plasma, the blood from the lambs, and that's all through a contract as well. So, um, and that just real quick, so everybody that's listening doesn't just um, say, what is that? He just said he sells blood <laughs> off the sheep. So we bleed our sheep like we do uh, donate, uh, like a human would donate blood. And then they use the, that blood to create the, um, the little petri dishes that they test for antibodies or infections on, on uh, people in hospitals all around the world. So okay. uh, that we, we do that. There's a lot of research that's done with lambs, with lamb or sheep's blood. Yeah. And so we sell that without hurting the animal. Right. So, right. Um, but yeah, so, so that your, your product stream, diversify the product stream, but then we also do it all through, um, through contracts. Okay. So we know who we're dealing with. We know the risks of which companies we're working with and we're very, and we're contracted to them. And so we're not directly selling on the open market. We, are guaranteed to sell that product. Whereas on the cattle side, um, we're much more open, but that's because we just feel more confident in that. And when we weigh our, our risk position, we look at our total inventory and we can say to ourselves, well, we're 40% cattle, 60% sheep, 100% of the sheep are contracted. Therefore we can justify more risk on these cattle because when you lock in price security, you eliminate price downside, but also price opportunity. Price upside, right. So it's both sides and you gotta, and that doesn't mean that you should always gamble, but risk management is deciding how much to gamble. <laughs> but it's right. almost like you've got a portfolio that you look at in terms of your risk and you, you may have, you may be more risk averse in one part of that portfolio than you are in another. That, yes. So it, it'd be like if you went to a stockbroker and the stockbroker said, oh, you need to diversify all these assets. And in that diversification, you need to buy a bunch of ag companies, but then you're also a farmer. And so, <laughs> but you didn't tell the broker you're a farmer. So, you know, yes, he's, cor he's correct in theory. You should have exposure to everything. But at the same time, if you already have exposure in these other files, you need to make sure you actually look at it as a whole rather than yeah. segmented risk. You need to look at total risk. Yeah. 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 And really it's about how much can you tolerate to lose? Right. So. Right. And what's the probability in any given year that, that you will lose that. Right. Yeah. And if you're, if it's like a 50% probability, you'll lose it. Then you got to assume you probably will. If it's, 20%, you got to assume you might, if it's 1%, well, then you can maybe gamble a little more, but yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Are there some production focused risks 
in either the cattle or the sheep business that keep you awake at night? Uh, weather is the biggest. Okay. Yeah, I'd say, you know, you have a dry fall slash spring um, like this year and your, your hay costs and your outside feed costs will go up substantially. Mm -hmm. So we'll, we'll uh, triple the amount of hay we have to feed a cow in a, in a dry year versus a wet year here in the hills. And so that's when a big... When you decide to do something other than buy feed, does it have to get really, really serious for you to sell cattle or, or wean early? Is, is buying feed the first well, resort? Yeah, so weaning early is never an issue for us. We, because we wean and go to our irrigated pasture. Okay. Um, so we have that, once again, that's built into the risk is that... Right we know we can wean early. All of our lambs, we wean early because we're not selling at the wean, we're selling them fats uh, later on. So we're able to wean all that inventory in January and save all of the spring growth for spring, summer, and fall for the cows. Then also the calves, we have our herd split to where we have 30% uh, that gets weaned and goes to the irrigated pasture. We can do that anytime and we've already weaned all of those cattle back in April. Um, okay. The other part of the cattle are contracted once again, they're contracted to a company, so we know we're going to sell them to them, and they ship right off the wean. And that um, those we are going with early now because of the feed concern, but we're spreading it out. So rather than shipping everything in two weeks, we're actually shipping everything over about a four-week stretch. So some of them are actually going to ship on time, others early. So whenever okay. we start getting into these serious situations, I don't I don't really believe in taking everything and just liquidating or chopping it all off I believe in, um, in in stepping into it so you want to do a little and then a little and then a little and slowly increase as it goes if it gets worse and um, we've had some opportunities pop up to lease some ground from some neighbors and things that have helped us and and then as far as um, selling livestock we always try to cull first and so if it's a tough year we're going to cull heavy um, okay. this year we're going to mal their cows probably we haven't done it for four or five years yeah conditions we're in we don't need to but um, we try to look at droughts as an opportunity to improve the quality the genetic quality of your cows and um, get rid of some of those moderate to low producers um, you're obviously going to get rid of the no producers but the other thing we're doing too is we're preg checking about i don't know three weeks early four weeks oh, okay. early so okay that so you'll, a chunk of cows. you'll ship anything that's open yeah yeah and then like another thing we'll do is so um, oftentimes we'll preg check, we'll wean the calves and then we'll preg check the cows and we'll run them for 45 days to dry them out and make them a little more fleshy marketable product. Well, this year we're just going to sell them all right off the bat. We might pick up five cents doing it that way and then we'll pick up a little weight, but with the cost of feed of maintaining that cow and what she's going to take from the herd, it makes more sense just to get rid of her sooner. So we're selling those cows. Um, you know, we're not holding them 45 days plus we're Preg checking them about 15 days earlier. So you're looking at two months earlier, getting rid of that five, 10% opens. We're going to do something similar. Typically we'll, we'll um, sell anything that doesn't bring a lamb in when we wean. So if, if you comes in dry, she's lost a lamb or didn't breed up or whatever, we'll, we'll go through everybody at weaning and, and ship those ewes. But we're going to do that at shearing. So that's about six weeks earlier than we'd normally be looking at that and we'll anything that that didn't breed we had a couple that lost lambs um they're going to go just so we can save that forage for for use that are nursing lambs or for lambs later on um, in a year like you, this. you raise your own replacements 
We do. We do. And I was going to ask you about that with replacements. How do you handle that in terms of a, of a drought or a risk management strategy? Yeah. So our replacements, we raise them, uh, we raise them ourselves. Um, and then we'll breed them first of May, same as everything else. So they're born in October, getting exposed in May. We'll leave mm -hmm. the rams out for 75 days. Last year we got um, like, I don't know, I think 11% of them bred or something ridiculously horrible. But uh, <laughs> a lot of that was because we were screwing up and throwing white face rams to our, um, our uh, ewes that wouldn't breed. So the <laughs> late lammers were the ones that were half. And so we, <laughs> This last year, we went to a 75-day window. So I'd imagine we're going to pick up our percentage. We'll double or triple what we were last year. I, I don't know where we'll end up, but it should be a lot better. They're a lot more mature because they're yeah. older. Yeah. Um, but then we – so we breed them that first year, and um, and then we run the other bunch. We'll run them uh, year-round, and then we'll expose them again. And then if they're dry that second year, then we'll okay. uh, get rid of them. But we've, if we see improved conception, then we may consider canning the ones that don't breed up the first year. But we're not, we need to let our genetics work in that direction rather than make the decision now. Because if we do that now, we'll get rid of way too many good use. So, yeah. Because the reason yeah. they're not breeding, they're immature. Yeah. And that's, we have typically waited till the user yearlings to breed them the first time. Um, more, more of a size issue. I, I want them to be kind of that 80%, 90% of mature weight. Um, I think this year we could have bet, bred our replacements as lambs rather than as yearlings and, and done okay. Um, so we may reevaluate that a little bit too. Do you think it takes a production, it takes production away from that ewe when you breed it so young? Longevity out of the ewe? I think it may, in fact, longevity. It certainly affects her ability to get to what I think is an ideal mature size in our country and for our operation. I think it, it, if they're having to, to carry a, a fetus and then nurse a lamb, they're putting energy that would have gone to bone and, and frame development and muscle development into milk. And I think it does have an impact. What do you think? Um, I've heard the argument both ways and I, I really, um, sympathize with both. I think genetics definitely play into it. Um, yeah. because some of those fin type real prolific genetics, I can breed them really early and they'll, they do just fine. Um, but some of these finer wooled ones, I, I worry that I'm losing years by catching them early, which is one of the reasons why we hold them an extra year. Right. Right. Uh, and we'll even give, even breeding as yearlings, we'll, we'll give those first timers a second chance if they, if they don't breed up that first year. Unless there's something else going on with them, we'll give them a second chance to, to get bred. Yeah, but, once, they're, once they're over that, that year old, if they don't breed, they're gone. We, we, we're pretty strict. Do you ever, have you ever been in a situation where drought forced you to keep fewer replacements than you would have kept otherwise? Um, yes, I think, yes. The last big drought, we sold ewe lambs into the meat rather okay. than retain them. Okay. But we always, we've always kept cattle. 
we always keep the heifers and the cattle. Okay. Okay. But we did it and it, the, the inventory, the herd downsized for the sheep. So we downsize our numbers with that move. I always, I always worried to do that because once you do that once, once you play that card, you can never play it again. Right. Whereas if you sell that older running age you a year early, your productive longevity of your herd's still there. Right. But if you sell that one year, you lose that generation. Yep. And I I worry I worry That's about that. So that that suggests also that you've got to have at least some information on those individual animals to decide how you're going to manage that risk, right? You need to know which are your productive ewes and which are your or less productive ewes or cows in order to make that decision, right? Absolutely. And thank, thank goodness for electronic IDs. Those <laughs> things are great. We, we, when we implemented those, we were able to actually capture that data. And now we can make good decisions. And one of the, <laughs> one of the best decisions that we or one of the best parts about when I talk about our yearly our ewe lambs weren't we're making a lot of mistakes well a lot of the bummer lambs that we were having were white-faced females because they're kind of tender small ones and so they'd have twins or something and they'd kick off this white-faced ewe lamb we'd raise it on the bottle mix them back in with the commercial herd and then we'd end up sorting that thing and she'd turn into a ewe but her mom had a huge problem and so we ended up keeping those genetics and, and um, which, you know, hurt our maternal line. But when we put those EID tags, we're able to see what everything is. And you can, you can, you know, what you know what you're doing a lot better now. And that was definitely an operational mistake on my part. But if you're not making mistakes, you're not trying. And if you're not correcting mistakes, you're not learning. So. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. That's a good point too. I, and I, I think the, the technology is on my list for future episode to, to really dive in a little more deeply too. Do you have, so stand on risk, curious as to whether there are specific legal or, or human risks that you're worried about or concerned with and, and kind of how you deal with some of those. <laughs> I got a letter today, yesterday, that um, there was a guy who worked for a concrete company that leased a yard next to one of the ranches that we leased and he fell off his truck in 2017 and hurt himself and somehow we got named in a lawsuit that was filed in 2020. Yes, you talk about risk. Yeah, there's human <laughs> risk and um, you know, it's obvious it's frivolous. It's obvious it's ridiculous, but yet you have to deal with it and you're if you're not time on it, right? And if you're not prepared where you have an insurance company and you're insured properly, then you won't be able to to uh, handle those types of things. You'll you're actually will lose you can lose big time on some of those things if you're not prepared right. So um, yeah. it's really important to have a good insurance person. Um, and we work with ours uh, very closely and very well and uh, yeah, insurance is very important. You got to look at your infrastructure that you have and make sure that it's insured properly so that way you can rebuild it when you need to in case something happens. Yeah. Um, 
you also have like the LRP price insurance um, yeah. stuff and the weather insurance thing. Those are all done through insurance carriers. And those are valuable tools, except for the sheep LRP insurance, which is basically worthless because when the market does tank, they can't report because of lack of confidentiality. And so then there's no payments made, even though everything was supposed to be insured. So that's that's a topic. And I hope someone from the USDA is listening and figured out <laughs> how to, how to um, get that thing funded and get people paid and covered because, my goodness, what a, what yeah. a disastrous program. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the weather insurance is a good pro good pro project, and then you have like the NAP and different USDA um, yeah. FSA programs too. So yeah, right, right. I think one of the issues that that uh, we're very aware of, and it's kind of changed our focus in the kinds of guard dogs that we use. You know, we use we use livestock guardian dogs um, pretty extensively, and it's. The dog that fits for us is probably not the dog that fits someplace in Idaho or Wyoming or someplace like that on open range. I need a dog that doesn't like coyotes, but that also won't bite somebody if he gets out of the pasture or chase a bicyclist down the road or those types of things. We had an occasion um, with one of our early dogs where he jumped electric fence and bit somebody riding down the county road on their bicycle. Um, you know, fortunately we had a landlord that liked sheep and dogs and who was there when it happened and it happened to a person who also liked sheep and dogs and, um, it worked out, but, but those are the kinds of things that you got to tell your insurance agent, right? Yeah, we're running dogs and their job is to be aggressive with predators. ASI does have some guard dog insurance that that's available for folks that are using dogs like we are. And I think that's a pretty good, a pretty good option for managing some of that risk too. That's funny you say that because that, that is the exact reason why we don't use livestock guardian dogs. And we yeah. have, we have a lot of coyotes where we're at, but we, we don't use the dogs because the risk of that outweighs the benefit we would receive from running those dogs. Cause it's just too urban where we are, even though we're right. in the middle of nowhere. Right. Right. And I, it's, it's interesting in the 15 years or so that we've had dogs, people in our community are a little more aware of them now. And so I haven't gotten a call for a while, but I'll, I'll probably get six or seven calls from animal control during the course of a year saying, we got a big white dog. Do you know whose it might be? Um, and I think now I get those calls from neighbors rather than animal control which which is good and and typically they're not ours um but i think that is that's a big issue with, with using dogs uh, there's a story from a friend up in up north and they had a dog out with their sheep and the animal control officer came out and actually took the dog from the flock of sheep and brought it into the pound and then charged them to take it out <laughs> just like what are you doing <laughs> the first dog that we had Nevada County Animal Control went through our electric fence, got the dog, took it to the pound and called me and said, there was a dog in your sheep. And I said, yeah, I hope it's still there. <laughs> what did you do with it? Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Any, any other, um, I, I guess. How do, you mitigate, how do you mitigate the fire risk? 
Oh, good question. Very good question. We do a couple of things. Um, even at our small size, we have enough animals that if we had a fire coming at us, we couldn't evacuate everything at one time. You know, I can't imagine if you had semi loads worth of animals, how you'd deal with it. For us, it's, it's multiple gooseneck loads. So we do a couple of things. Um, I mentioned that we're, you know, we're always situationally aware in the summertime about smoke and, and listening for sirens or fire planes. Um, everybody that works with us carries water and fire tools in their pickup from about the 1st of June till fire season's over. Because um, we're likely to be the first ones out of fire that's close to the sheep. Um, and if we've got the ability at least to slow it down, we try to do that. We, um, the other thing I realized when this friend of mine passed away that I talked about earlier was that I know where all of our sheep are all the time. My wife doesn't necessarily know the exact address of where every group of sheep is. And so we've started writing down, um, Every time we move sheep, here's the address, here's the closest neighbors, here's how you access the sheep. And during fire season, we also write down where is a safe zone that the sheep could be put if there is a fire. So there's a place where we summer that um, is probably five acres of horse pasture, or horse, <laughs> horse desert actually is more <laughs> accurate, I think. And we've talked to those folks, if there is a fire, we're gonna run the sheep in with the horses because there isn't a damn thing that's gonna burn in that five acres if fire gets going around it. And hopefully the wool protects the horse. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so that that's, we've started doing that and now we've taken that a step further and I share that list with animal control and with law enforcement. Um, one of the issues for us with with all this leased ground is that if we had a big fire and they shut a road that was our only access point and somebody from out of town who didn't know me was manning that roadblock, they're not gonna let me get in because my ID has a different address than where I'm going. And so we've, we've tried to be a little more proactive about letting local officials know where we've got sheep so that, that hopefully we can make a phone call or two and get access to them um in that in that kind of a situation and then the last thing that we've we have done um i think this is an area where my personal and professional interests overlap there's not enough sheep in placer county to mitigate all of the fire danger and not enough we don't have enough sheep to totally mitigate fire danger in the communities where we graze but we can be strategic so we can graze fire breaks along roads, we can graze fire breaks around people's houses um, and maybe give the fire um, service a, a chance to, to make a stand places or, or at least slow a fire down because of where we've had animals and, and impacted those fine fuels. What, do you guys worry much about fire um, where you are in the summertime or are you mostly unirrigated by then? Yeah, we worry about fire in our hills. Uh, grass fires can get pretty nasty, and we get some pretty amazing winds. Yeah, in the windiest right. parts in the in the in the country, really. And right. so, when you get a fire going, it'll 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 go really strong, and you can have a fire jump almost a mile if the winds are right. And so, 
Um, we do, we do uh, out in the hills, we got a lot of fire breaks. Everything gets full fire breaks. We're probably the most obsessive fire break drivers on the, in Solano County, but we, uh, so we do that in the hills and then, um, you know, a lot of chase, a lot of chopping and, and trimming and stuff around buildings and things like that to keep the, keep everything off. Then um, up in the irrigated pasture, the big risk is flood. Um, right. And it's about knowing kind of where you're at and the drainage right. systems of the irrigated districts. So we're in the Delta. So we're really low. And depending on the ranches, um, some of the ranches are actually uh, right at sea level. Um, and so, or a couple feet up. And so if you have a flood event and the bypass gets full, um, we can flood in these areas. And so you always have to have a plan on where to go. The benefit with flood is that if it's flooding, that means it rained, which means there's feet <laughs> in the hills, hopefully. <laughs> so that's, that's, a, that's the one good side. So usually that's the outlet. Well, and I think that, that points to some other trade-offs too. And I, I should say for us, Flood is not so much um, flooding where animals are grazing, but it can certainly limit our access. You know, we'll get road flooding or, or creeks that wash out a road and maybe have trouble getting to a place. But I, one of the trade-offs on, on managing fire risk, we can graze everything that could possibly burn in the summer and have a fall like we had last fall and have no feed left at all. So there's this tension for us between managing our forage so that we've got a buffer if it's a dry fall versus mitigating that fire danger um, in the summer and early fall. And I think it's hard to do it all with sheep too because you do need, there's a nutritional requirement and when you get down and push that feed hard, it, there's not a lot of nutrition in the leftovers. And that's why the folks that are doing that work get paid to do it. You know, they're, they're, sacrificing productivity in those sheep in some regards in order to serve that other purpose. I think that's an important point. It might be a topic for a future episode. I think maybe so. I think maybe <laughs> so. One, one last question for you. How do you know if your risk management plan has worked? Uh, if you're in business next year. Okay. That's the final grade. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, we look at, uh, we try to, we try to, uh, every year our goals are to increase equity, positive cash flow, and a net positive taxable income. Those three factors. And any given year, you can have the one or two are all up or down or sideways, depending on what it is. But we look at those three factors. And if we hit all three of those factors, we pay bonuses. If we don't do it, we don't pay bonuses. Okay. That's kind of, those are the main things we look at. Okay. And I'd say that's it. And risk always changes. So. Right, right, right. And I, that's, I think, the process that you guys use for evaluating it both formally and informally is, is really critical. And, and we've started doing that both formally and informally as well. I think the communication piece of it is um, enormously important, no matter what size your business is, right? Yeah, I think one other thing that's really important to recognize when you're looking at risk for us is um, the risk you have in a breeding you is a lot different than a, the risk you have in buying a feeder lamb and reselling it back. And so, oh, really? Um, because when you buy a feeder lamb, 
your cost basis is up front and yep. it requires cash in you and it's immediate um, and it's a short hold, short turn. So you don't have multiple years to make any of the money back. You right. just have straight feed costs, what you can sell it for and back. And so that's a lot different than a breeding you. We look at our breeding herd as a, we, we actually look at the breeding herd as the financial security for our feeder risk-taking project. So mm -hmm. um, the ewes provide the equity to, and, and we, don't, we don't ever want to borrow against our breeding herd. Yeah. We only want to borrow X percent of what we're buying of a feeder animal because if you get too much, if you get, if you're borrowing too much money to buy a feeder animal, your margin can get eaten up by interest if you don't pay attention. Yeah. So that's yeah. what we try to look at. And you can hide that from yourselves if you throw all of your breeding stock in there because you can say that oh, well, you're borrowing from your breeding stock to, to run these feeder animals. And so your risk is fairly low. But in a case like this year, your, your, your breeding ewes are worthless. Try selling 5,000 breeding ewes today. <laughs> Nobody, there's no buyers. Yeah. So your risk is really high. And, and the value in those breeding animals is the year-over-year -year production right. at a low cost. And so um, I think it's important you separate those two, um, those two layers of the production system or areas of the production system as different risk management positions. So. Well, and I would, as you're talking about that, I would also suspect that if you've paid attention to your genetics and your breeding animals, whether it's cattle or sheep, those females fit your system and fit your country and fit your forage resources. And so you don't decide this year, we're gonna get rid of those ewes and get back in next year and have sheep that fits your system like like the sheep that you developed over the course of, of many years would. So there's a risk factor of bringing outside animals in too. In that definitely, way. I'd say there's definitely a risk factor of that. I wouldn't, I would also argue that you can buy uh, use as a production strategy and you can be very successful buying other people's use, running them and not raising any replacements and just buying in your replacements from different herds every year but your whole model has to be based off of that and your risk is different. Right. So, and, right. and really what the big difference in the risk is the cash requirement. So, yeah. Yeah. Good. You're, I think that's a topic to explore. Yeah. Know. Yeah. <laughs> Never anything, ending. Anything else that, that comes to your mind in, on this topic before we, we wrap up? Uh, right. I'd like to kind of just ask one question or see if we can just try to sum up what are the risk management tools we have in the sheep industry? And have? I think they, they probably differ for you and I a little bit. So I think our risk management tools um, in our operation would, would be knowledge for one thing, knowledge of where we operate, knowledge of, of what we can do to care for our sheep, knowledge of what our marketing options are. I think um, our diversity of products is a risk management strategy in sheep too, to some extent. Certainly insurance is one of our risk management strategies. So liability insurance um, for our operation that's, that's separate from our family's homeowner's insurance. It's a, we've got business liability insurance. I think for uh, information, 
So tracking information, our production information and our financial per performance information helps us manage risk because then we, we can identify where we've got weak spots. Um, what are your, what are the tools that you go to that you, that you use in your operation? So there, there's, uh, we, I think we share a lot of the business tools. So um, managing your efficiencies, the regular liability insurance, all, all those kind of things. Um, but then just to, to kind of bring it back that the definition is the forecasting and evaluation of tools. So it's the knowledge of the risks and then it's the identification of the procedures. So then it's followed by an action. So it's understanding your risks with an action taken to buffer those risks. And uh, there's a lot of tools in the toolbox to do that. In the sheep side, you have the, the obvious ones, which are the, the insurance program. Um, you have different pricing contract options with different people, um, different companies and things. Um, so understanding where you're gonna sell those animals into and then taking an action to develop a contract that helps limit the risk on your side. Um, but then there's a lot of other tools that we like to try to implement, especially on the um, sale end of things. It, and the most valuable is we try to sell one load of lambs every week of the year. And if you sell one load of lambs, or if you sell one lamb every day throughout the whole year, your average return is going to be better than if you try to guess the market. And yeah. that in itself is a risk management strategy. So you, yeah. we try to we try to buy year round and sell year round. So the more often times we can buy and the more often times we can sell, the better position our portfolio we'd be in. Because on the downturns, you're replacing losses at low basis inventory. And on the high sales, you're replacing the, the you're taking those profits and replacing them at a higher value, but you're there's a correlating profit capitalized on that low basis deal. So yeah. I think that is really important. Um, and then just all those other basic tools of just trying to be aware of your operational efficiencies and trying to eliminate that bottom five to 10%. Just yeah. really try to focus on getting rid of those inefficient processes, whatever they are in whatever area of the business it is. And I, I think one of the things I've realized in working with other producers and, and in, in ranching ourselves, um, really hit home a friend of mine who who runs cattle and, and grows timber up on the north coast told me this um, we were working on establishing a land trust for the cattlemen's association probably 20 years ago and we had a lawyer who was working with us who was very very risk averse and was actually kind of holding up progress in the establishment of this organization and my friend dina looked at her one day and said you know everybody around this table is a livestock producer. We understand risk because we deal with it every day. And so we think we're better off making a decision and sticking to that decision, taking action, than worrying about risk in kind of this endless manner of not ever doing anything. And I think the point that you made is that, that you've got to act on that plan is, is really critical. Um, in terms of, of completing that risk management strategy, right? You can't just talk about it. Absolutely. I think you got to recognize that where there's risk, there's opportunity. And if you eliminate all risk, you eliminate all opportunity. And yep. so you got to, you got to understand the risk 
and take an action, take a action to minimize them, but don't eliminate all of it. So that's an excellent point. All right. So same time, same place next week. Yes, sir. Next week. Yeah. And I'll, I'll come up with something good. This is a good one. Wow. This is, this was great. Thank you for sharing all of that insight, Ryan. No, thank you. I appreciate the information and I, I learned a little bit this time. Oh. Everybody else did too. So good. Good. Till next week, cheap stuff you should know with Dan Megan and Ryan Mahoney. All right. See ya. Thank you.